Welcome to the Bread of Life, a listener-supported program of Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more about CPE, go to breadoflifeboise.org. It is another good day to go to the Word of God and there look to Jesus Christ as our only Savior and our complete sufficiency in all things. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The key to understanding these special verses is to remember that John is writing an apologetic of Jesus Christ. He is laying the groundwork for proving that Christ was indeed God come in the flesh. The passage I've just read, and in particular, if we just took the first two verses of this passage, we have what is one of the most wonderful passages in all of Scripture. It is a song. It is a revelation. It is a poetic proclamation for all of the ages. What we have here in John's writing are very simple, very short, very clear sentences. And each one of them is easily understood in a sense the clarity cannot be denied. And yet at the same time, as you come before them, they run so deep, they express things that are so mysterious that they call for us a sense of silent wonder. The other day I noticed a documentary on the waterfalls in Niagara. And there they mentioned that when Charles Dickens went to Niagara Falls that he sat by the falls in silent wonder for seven days and could not move himself from being transfixed upon that great expression of power and strength and majesty. And yet this passage that we come to is one of the great Niagara's of spiritual revelation that you'll find in the scripture. And it calls for us, in a sense, to not postulate on it, to not simply preach upon it, to not find our three points or our two points and to work through some homiletical exercise. It really calls for us a sense of silence and an attitude of worship in which we just silently bow before what John has written here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and to soak it all in. What I'm saying is we cannot fully understand all that it means. And we cannot somehow extrapolate all of its meanings in some kind of exercise of preaching on this passage. And yet, we're not excused from pausing here and lingering here and considering it and weighing it and measuring it and letting its power sink into our soul and into our systems. The Christian who reads this passage and as they begin reading it and going through it and they read through the first 13 verses rightfully identify that this book that John has written is the gospel story of Jesus Christ, that it is the gospel message or story of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, when this passage was written, and when individuals first began to read it, we might want to place ourselves into the minds of that individual who may have read this book for the first time. Do you know, in all of the other Gospels, you'll find that there's somewhat of an introduction. And in each one of the introductions, there's a statement or a declaration that helps us very quickly know that these Gospels are written about and are proclamations of the life of Jesus Christ. But when you take up and you begin to read this Gospel of John, and you begin to read what John has written here, John does not initially tip his hand to let us know that the subject that he is writing upon is the person of Jesus Christ. We provide now, as Christians... We provide into the text that understanding because we know we've gone on and we've read the whole passage and we've heard about him and we know who Jesus Christ is. And so immediately when we read this passage and we read, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, we understand that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. In fact, 
my Bible has a little extra that it's added to it. Maybe your Bibles do too. Where someone who has edited the Bible has put some little captions at the top of different phrases and different parts of the Scripture so that we can know exactly what it's talking about. And although uh, that's all right and that can be helpful, it's not the Scripture. The Scripture is just what's written there in the bold print. But my Bible has the heading for those two verses as the deity of Jesus Christ. They know what it's all about. They understood what the message was. And understand that these Gospels were written in a sense as an apologetic to be read by the people of the nations around. And so Matthew was written to be an apologetic to the Jews. And Mark was written in a sense to be an apologetic to the Italians. And Luke was written in a sense to be an apologetic, bringing the life of Christ's story to the Greeks. But John writes here, and John is speaking to all men. And John is speaking to us. But it's an apologetic of Jesus Christ. And when individuals would first pick this up and begin reading it, they might not know that that was the subject that was being addressed. That's all I'm saying. And so, in a sense, what I want to invite you to do is to pick up this passage and read these first 13 verses as if you were a Jewish contemporary, a Jew who was a contemporary of John, or a Greek who was a contemporary of John, as if you were one of the men of that day and age, that Hellenistic world. And you were grabbing and understanding and retrieving what was being written and what you were reading in light of what you already knew and what you understood and what you comprehended. Because what you'll see is John doesn't tip his hand towards Jesus Christ until he gets to verse 14. And he doesn't even mention his name until he gets to verse 17. And so, for a moment, let's look at this passage as if we were an unbelieving Jew and we were reading it for the first time or an unbelieving Greek. The Jews and the Greeks had no concept or idea of who Jesus Christ was, at least not initially, not before he was proclaimed before them. But what they did do and what they did have an understanding of and what they did have some kind of mental picture and grasp of was the concept of the word. That is the Greek word logos. They had an understanding of what the logos was, what the word was. And so when they began to read this passage, they understood something of the word. They identified some meaning to that phrase, the word. And they began to apply what they understood of that term, the word, the logos, to what they were reading. This is what the Jew would have understood. The Jew, when he looked at the phrase or the term, the word, the logos, he would have understood that this term was used in place of the expression of that most holy name for God. You see, in the Jewish nation... There was an idea in the scriptures that when they came upon a certain name that was used for God, that it was not proper for them to even pronounce it because it was such a holy name. That name is the name Yahweh, and you'll find it throughout the scriptures where God is referred to as Yahweh. In your Bibles, if you read through your Bibles, you'll see a uppercase or a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's in the place of the word or the name Yahweh. You'll also see the word Lord used in other cases where it is a capital L and then it's a small O, small R, small D. And in the Old Testament, that is almost always referring to the word Adonai, which was a different word used for God. But the term Yahweh was this holy name that the nation of Israel felt that they were not to speak and to utter with their lips. And so in place of that name, as they were reading the scriptures, if they were reading to themselves, they would simply silently pass over that phrase. But if they were reading to the congregation, the scriptures orally, which they were to do on a regular basis, that was a part of the command that they were, as a part of their synagogue worship, to stand before the congregation and to read the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, when they came to the word 
the name Yahweh, they would put other names in its place. They might instead say the Holy One, or they might instead say Adonai or Lord, or they might simply call him the Blessed One. And they would read the Hebrew Scriptures to one another, placing a different name in its place. During the time of Jesus Christ, during the time of John, the Jewish people of Israel didn't speak Hebrew. They were taught, though, that when they were in their synagogues, that they had to read the Scripture in the Hebrew text. The problem was the people didn't understand Hebrew. They understood Aramaic. And Aramaic is kind of like what modern English today is to old ancient Anglo-Saxon. And that's what Aramaic was to Hebrew. They didn't understand Hebrew then. And so they couldn't understand the scriptures that were being read to them. So there was a concession made. And the concession was that as the scriptures were being read to them, that another person might stand alongside the person reading in the Hebrew and that person would translate in the Aramaic. He would give an oral Aramaic translation of what was being read. But eventually what happened was individuals began to write down Aramaic translations of the Hebrew that could be read in turn after the Hebrew had been read. And these were called the Targums. The Targums were the common Aramaic scriptures that were read alongside of the Hebrew scriptures in the Jewish synagogue. And so when people were listening to the scriptures being read to them, the words that they heard, that they received, that they understood, that they grasped, as a language to their own hearts of the scriptures were the Targums, were the Aramaic writings. And so the interesting thing is to go back and look at the Targums that were used during that time and see how they used or how they handled the term Yahweh, the name for the Lord, the all-powerful, the almighty God, the most holy name for God. And what you'll discover is that on a number of different occasions, Instead of saying just Holy One or Lord or Blessed One, the Targums used the term the Word, the Word of God, in place of God's name. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, where you would read in the Scriptures, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp in order to meet with God. The Targum, or a Targum would have put it this way, they were brought forth to meet the Word of God. William Barclay, a great commentarian and a gentleman with a tremendous mind, an encyclopedic mind of ancient history, William Barclay notes that in just one of the Targums, the Targum of Jonathan, that you will find over 320 times in which the word is used to replace the name and the person of God. Another example would be where we read that Adam and Eve heard the Lord God walking in the garden. Instead, the Targum would say that Adam and Eve heard the word of God walking in the in the garden. And so throughout the life of the Jewish people that were living in John's day, as they would go to the synagogue, they began to get in the habit of beginning to understand and conceive that the word of God was also a term that could be used in the place or as a name or an expression of God. And this was something that was easy for them to do because they already had a concept that the word was active and had almost the power of personality. They read through the Old Testament the prophets would say on a regular basis, the word of God came to me saying... The word of the Lord came to me saying. And so they had a sense in which they already were in a sense conceptualizing the word as something that was active like a person. I was reading a old commentator that wrote back about 200 years ago or 150 years ago. And he said this is a common phrase, this sense that words and language have their own personality and their own power. 
This idea was something that was not common among the Jews, but it was also common even to our day in the Middle East. And he shared the story of traveling on a caravan, and he was going through the desert, and another caravan passed him, and it was a caravan full of Muslim men. And as it passed them, these Muslim men blessed him or offered a traveling blessing upon them as they passed by. And then after they passed by, it became known to these men that they had given their blessing not to another Muslim, but they had given it to Christian infidels. And so they returned from their caravan and stopped their caravan and pleaded with them that they would give the blessing back to them. They didn't want the blessing to remain on them. They wanted it to be returned to them. See, the idea was that their words were active and powerful and ongoing. We think of the story of Isaac who blessed Jacob and then Esau wanted to receive the blessing himself and Isaac said he couldn't. The word, the blessing had already gone out from his mouth upon Jacob. Even though Isaac had blessed Jacob unwittingly, he had been duped, he couldn't bring it back. The word had a sense of its own life, its own power, its own person. So this concept was to some extent already in the mind of the Jewish person so it wasn't a stretch for them in the Targums to take the name of the Lord and put in its place the word of the Lord and think of it as a name for a replacement for this all-powerful God. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. First, go to traincpe.org traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.